Come on, let's go. By shortwave broadcast, direct from important overseas capitals, we are about to broadcast this moment in our history. Hello and welcome to the History Workshop podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Raphael Samuel, who died in 1996, is arguably best remembered as the guiding spirit of the History Workshop movement, the founder of History Workshop Journal, and a tireless advocate for a democratized practice of history, built on the recognition that the subject was too important to be left to academic historians alone. But he was also a brilliant historian of 19th century Britain and a writer of exceptional eloquence and style. Those gifts as historian and writer form the focus of Workshop of the World, Essays in People's History, a new collection of Samuel's writings long in the making and published by Verso with an introduction by John Merrick. To talk about the book, and about the context from which the essays emerged, I sat down with John Merrick and with Sally Alexander, a founder-editor of History Workshop, who was Raphael's student in the late 1960s. I began by asking them both about the story behind the making of this volume. Do you want to start, Sally? Because I think you, you know, I know that this volume, or an idea for a collection of Raph's historical writings has been floating around for 10 years or more, right? I think it was you and Alan Hawkins, is that correct, who kind of initially thought through a structure or a, a yes, proposal? it was a lot longer than 10 years. Okay. And it was John who's made it possible, really. I mean, it, it was it was um, Alan Hawkins and I and Gareth Stedman-Jones uh, were interested in doing a volume of his British es- essays. And so were Verso. And Verso were very keen. However, it went off the boil more than once. You don't need to know all of this, really, Mary Beth. But what happened was that Alan became very ill and he was unable to work on it. And Alan Hawkins was was a historian of the countryside and he was a student with me, Raphael's first history students from 1968 to 1970. So we were Ruskin uh, with Raphael. So we knew him in a particular way, uh, you know, differently, but in a particular way. And then along came John. So you talk about this volume because we'd we'd drawn up a much longer list of essays to be included and we'd reread them and reread them and sent, you know, discussed them with Gareth Stedman Jones and other, other members of the collective as well as discussing them with Alison Light in some detail. But it was John's independent discovery of Raphael's work mm. that really inspired this volume and has got it off the ground. Yeah, so I came in slightly later. I, I work at first, I'm one of the editors there, but my enthusiasm came for this volume, I suppose independently of that even. You know, I, I first read... I first read Raphael Samuel's work, it must have been Theatres of Memory, when I was an undergraduate, 18 or 19. Again, it wasn't part of my kind of history course. I think it was probably, I was interested in the British Marxist historians. I think I must have just seen a reference to it somewhere, picked it up kind of fortuitously. And, and then, you know, it was introduced to this whole new world of, of this way of doing history that I hadn't encountered before, this whole kind of historiographical universe I hadn't encountered before. 
So my enthusiasm for, for, for this project comes through that, my own kind of intellectual formation. Anyway, I, I'd been working at Versa for a couple of years and, and it was a colleague of mine, Leo Hollis, who's our um, head of editorial, our editorial director in the UK, who mentioned, you know, we, we both spoke about our kind of shared enthusiasm for Raphael's work. He mentioned to me that there was this project that had been sitting on his desk and others um, for a number of years, but, you know, was, was for different reasons. It hadn't quite found the kind of, hadn't, hadn't kind of gained the momentum to, to push itself through. As soon as I heard this, I knew that this was something I, I wanted to do. And I wanted to do both as an editor of Versa, but I think independently of that as well. I think, you know, it, it's, it's, it's something that I saw, you know, perhaps needed that person to pick it up and run with it mm. and I was looking through just now the um the original kind of table of contents that you mm. and Alan put together mm. and others it, it's quite it's still pretty similar there's a there's a few essays that have been one essay in particular that's been added into this that wasn't in the original lineup and that's the one on Robert Tressel um which I think is a, a fantastic short it was originally a talk from Hastings it's a fantastic short talk and and you know, it's it's in a volume that's incredibly inaccessible, actually. Um, and, you know, it, it's it's difficult to get hold of before. There's a few other essays in there that we had to get rid of because they were so long, particularly the very, very long 120 pages or more of on Headington Quarry. Massive, massive essay um, from the Village Life and Labour volume that I'd have loved to include it, but it was it was far too long. It would have been twice the length of the the other essays or something silly. Um, so we couldn't include that one. So we include the shorter version. But for more or less with some tweaks, it's it's similar in 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 structure as it was when you first proposed it. Which I think is again, I think it's a, a testament to the kind of work that you and Alan did on this before, you know, figuring out how this would fit together. And I think it's only taken some tweaking from me in, in its kind of actual form but I think it's 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 a collaborative process it has been from the start I think it's I think it's testimony to Raphael's the range of Raphael's work because he he really is a a a very significant historian to read for 19th century Britain you know 19th century has sort of disappeared apart from empire Mm. and some issues of feminist history but actually you know these essays include a rethink of industrial capitalism. Comers and goers is a rethink of migration and the mobility of the labor force, which conjures up the work of Alison Light's Common People, or Claire Wills' Lovers and Strangers, Mm. her study of, of, of migration. But Raphael was thinking about it in the early 1970s. And it's, it's partly the Comers and Goers essay, which is one of the backbones the spines of this volume I think John don't you is partly a counterpoint to an essay that Eric Hobsbawm wrote in 1964 or published in 1964 called The Tramping Artisan which was a landmark essay about again the mobility of labour and the organised skilled labourer perhaps 10% of the 19th century industrial workforce who were organized into trades unions and who during the periods of unemployment or strikes or economic depression would tramp the country in search of employment and that was accepted it was a form of of subsistence and provision for them and their families and Raphael's 
essay is partly a, a counterpoint to that. You know, it wasn't just the skilled artisan who tramped, he mm. said. It was all workers were ordinary, you know, bricklayers and navvies and jewellers and steel workers and haymakers and agricultural laborers. They were all moving around the countryside, the, the four nations that made up Britain. And they were joined by Europeans and uh, people from further afield in the world as well uh, at different seasons. So that essay, Comers and Goers, and the Workshop of the World really have sort of map mm. 19th century economic and industrial history, don't they? Yeah. But the one that, that, that John's included, the Robert Tressel essay, who's a socialist thinker, and really adds something, another dimension of Raphael's history, which is his interest in faith and belief, don't you think? Completely, yeah. I think the original the original title, I think, that, that you proposed for it was Comers and Goers. And I think that really kind of, as you say, kind of played into this, this there's a theme, there's a connection which runs through all of these and, and comes out quite strongly. And that also comes out very strongly in the essay on the Irish poor. Yes, it does, yes. As well, about, you know, the kind of fugitives, the... Yeah you know, the the kind of the ones that are truly kind of hidden from history or something, you know, things that aren't kind of the people who aren't necessarily encapsulated with this typical view of the Industrial Revolution. Yes. And I think running through all of them, though, there is, and it does come out strongest in the uh, the Irish essay, the Irish poor essay, and in the, the Robert Tressel one, which is this, it is something about faith. It's about both, you know, socialism as a faith, but also mm -hmm. it's about religious faith as well and how the two are in in you know intertwined obviously you know i think rafa was different from a lot of the other communist historians in that he wasn't a non-conformist christian he came from a jewish background although quite a secular one mm. um but it's still that same it's a it's a communism it's a, a socialism of faith and it really does run through each of these essays as well yes. um and i think you're right that that's a, it is something that gets brought out by that essay and it's one of the reasons why I wanted to include it was it adds something I think a, a kind of political element but also adds something about a question of kind of faith. And it's very much a question of the time isn't mm. it John I mean that that which you document which you describe in your introduction that period from 1956 to the mid-1960s you know with the disillusionment with communism mm. I mean Raphael was brought up as a young communist which he wrote about and the books were, were published by Ferso, <laughs> first published in the New Left Review, The Lost World of British Communism, and which he described, really, he reconstructed and reconfigured the whole, you know, what it meant to be a communist uh, in the mid 20th century, early mid 20th century in Britain. So he was, he was in, I mean, by the time I met him at Ruskin as a student, 1968, completely ignorant student, I have to say that I was. I didn't know this about him, although his reputation, I'd met his reputation on the left in, in London before I met him, if you see what I mean. But he was in some turmoil mm. and intellectual and political turmoil. So the exploration of faith and of the economy and how people live their everyday lives was crucial to the development mm. of his work as a historian 
and what he found in the sources and in in um, people's lives. And um, was there was there a sense of not in a simplistic way at all, but of the world of historical investigation and research and this sort of, um, because there's a really strong sense in these essays, I thought of the community out of which this thinking was emerged and the, the, the collective nature of the thinking behind it. And I was really struck by that. But was there a sense of, of, of the faith having migrated there to a faith in a kind of a, a, a community of thought and a community of, of pursuit of, of truth? that dwelled in these places, if you asked questions that a lot of people hadn't bothered to ask, that a lot of professional historians weren't bothering to ask. Meredith, <laughs> no, this well, is for that, Sally. That's right, but um, it's for you too, John. I mean, John's written so beautifully in the introduction about Raphael's work, but I think that's right. I mean, just, it's, it's clear Raphael's, I mean, all Raphael's work was extramural. That is, it was outside the academic world. Even though he was trained at Oxford and he was, he got a brilliant degree at Oxford, as all communists had to do. <laughs> they had to be better than anybody else. But he, and he was trained through the, you know, he served his apprenticeship on the new left as an activist in the Committee of 100 and the early universities in left review in the all the you know movements and organizations which mm. made up the new left in the late 1950s early 1960s so his he was deeply extramural but also by by persuasion or by belief and through intellectual breakdown and political trauma actually I think yeah, which yeah. John hints at in the introduction yeah. at least twice in 1956 and then later as well he began to think that socialism or communism or the communist never mind he didn't begin to think that the communist tradition had to be rethought as well but but that he began to think that perhaps we were looking historians were looking in the wrong places or asking the wrong people or thinking about the questions which were I mean it was as he said many times it was all very well you know the, the constitutional and political world of revolutions and treaties and mm. and constitutions and wars they matter uh, but they're documented but everyday life, what people think and feel in their everyday life, that can break open academic history. And I suppose the blocks, the concrete structures of history, historical thought, which prevent new ideas emerging. I'm putting it very clumsily. but No, no, I think that's right. And I, I think to kind of go back to the collective, the question of his work in a collective context, there's two really... This, in a sense, is two kind of productive, really productive parts of his work periods. There's the period broadly from 56, when he left the Communist Party in the context of Khrushchev's secret speech and the invasion of Hungary and Suez, to broadly 62 with the breakdown of the first new left. 
published mm. a huge amount in that period. Mm. You know, he's involved in universities and left review. Mm. He's writing for uh, bigger publications as well. He's also worked with uh, Michael Young's Institute for Community Studies and doing mm. studies on working class East East Enders, um, East Londoners. You also then get a second kind of period where his mm. work, you, you basically don't get any, he doesn't publish anything between 62 and 1970. Mm. I think there's maybe two pieces of, of published work in that period, and neither of them are, are big kind of fulsome essays or anything. They're both fairly contingent small pieces. You then get 1970 until effectively the end of his life, where he's publishing a huge amount, and particularly going into the late 80s and early 90s, He's publishing a huge amount in New Society, New Statesman, The Guardian, as well as History Workshop, as well as, you know, in academic publications. And I think those two periods are periods when he was involved in collective projects. Mm -hmm. You have the New Left, the first New Left. You know, he's involved with Stuart Hall, with Charles Taylor, Edward Thompson, John Savile and others. And then you get the period when he's at work. He's very deeply at work with his students at Ruskin and then with History Workshop, which comes at you know, just a couple of years, I think 66, 67 was the first. And then it builds up from there. And I think, you know, it, uh, there is something about his work, which is kind of collective. Most of these essays are from volumes that he did that came out of the history workshops themselves. You know, they're the collections. There's the People's History essay. The first one in the collection is the introduction to the famous, I think it's 1977, People's History and Socialist Theory History Workshop, the big one. There's also uh, a couple of others which are taken from those. There's the Workshop of the World essay, which is taken from the History Workshop Journal itself. So I think, you know, there's there's something about him which was, you know, in in inspired by these kind of these collectives and working with these kind of collectives to to further this work. It's not a it's not a work of a kind of singular historian, is it? But I also think that he learned from his students. He yeah. wasn't he didn't begin as a historian, and he he definitely definitely thought and learned from listening to his Ruskin students. I mean, Alan Hawkins knew, I mean, he is the architect of Headington Quarry. You know, he knew Alan Hawkins, for example, for example, you know, knew uh, the Oxfordshire countryside and the, uh, the topography of Oxfordshire, like the back of his hands. I mean, he'd been brought up in it. His father was an agricultural worker who'd been wounded in, the Spanish Civil War, actually. And uh, uh, Raphael uh, learned so much from Dole. Uh, I called him Dole, but he learned so much from him. You know, as uh, he, uh, Dole knew every pub, every, every gypsy, every poacher in the whole of Oxfordshire. So all Raphael's sources came from there, but not just from Alan Hawkins from other students at Ruskin. And he wrote a letter to History Workshop Journal itself in the early 1980s, I think, mm. where he said, you know, the, 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 the people that I meet at Ruskin have uh, an intellectual sort of hinterland and political knowledge, which is an enormous resource for them and for the historians. I mean, that word ordinary uh, is a loaded word, as Claire Langhammer has, has made us all think about. But, you know, it belongs to this period or the period that Raphael was working in. Ordinary people, ordinary life, daily life, everyday life, all those questions. Not programmatic, you know, without a political program or there was nothing 
didactic about Raphael's method of teaching mm. or learning, actually. But it was definitely calling on and releasing a lot of knowledge, which was which was present everywhere in among Ruskin students in his seminar that he ran with Tim Mason, the historian of Nazi Germany, and Gareth Stedman Jones, the author of Outcast London, and many others. And people flocked to Raphael. You know, people, other historians, rather, other mm -hmm. historians, you know, flocked to him and came to him to, to talk to him and to listen to him. One of the things that struck me too in reading, I think it's in Workshop of the World, no, no, it's in the essay on uh, people's history, mm -hmm. which maybe we can talk a little bit about the context for that, but mm -hmm. just how much feminism kept coming up and not just as, you know, we've overlooked women's experience, but we've overlooked the way that the insights of feminist historians can help us rethink the way we think about subjectivity. He strikes me, and I never met Raphael. I, I, I joined after uh, I think a year or two after he died, but that he was a sponge, a kind of intellectual sponge with this enormous reach for the for the meticulous illustrative detail, but also for the kind of structural scope that could take in so much and didn't become hidebound in a particular way of seeing the world. Mm -hmm. Go on. No, I was going to say, I think one of the reasons why I think this volume, and I hope this volume has a real kind of utility, you know, I think you're exactly right with him. And, and that's exactly what I get from every time I read Raphael's work, there's something new kind of sparks out. There's, you know, you see people's projects that happen 20 years later, and they're there in a footnote or something. And you see the way that it kind of sparks ideas. They're so kind of full. But I think one of the things I wanted to do with this, and I think has a real utility, is that it takes, I think, it takes Raphael's work which is, I think, a risk perhaps of becoming exclusively talked about in terms of the heritage debates of the 80s and 90s. And it puts it back into, into history kind of more fully. You know, I think people read Theatres of Memory because that's, that's his, his book that's out there in the world and it's, it's the most referenced. But I think there's so much more to Raphael's work and to his kind of historical scholarship and that is, you know, of huge value. And one of those is this openness. Um, mm. And the way he kind of self-questions. I was reading again this morning, actually, that there's an introduction he did to the three volumes on patriotism in the late 80s. It's wonderful, yeah. It's fantastic mm. volumes. And this, mm. the introduction particularly, a, a superb. And I, I hope we'll be able to get another volume of, of Raphael's essays in, because mm. this these need to be out kind of with a new audience as well. Fantastic. And, and even in that, he's kind of self-questioning. Mm. He says that, you know, actually, maybe this idea I had in the late 70s when that People's History um, essay was written, the idea I had of People's History in the context of the Falklands War and after and Thatcherism, I wasn't perhaps critical enough for what the people was, mm. how the people is constructed. You know, is the, the people is as much, you know, the kind of the Volk or, you know, mm. can be summoned up for the right as it can for the left. And actually, maybe, maybe I was... You know, I, I should have questioned that more. And I think that's, and you see this with the references to kind of feminism. You see this with, with the reference in that essay in particular, he talks about empire. So, you know, he's, he's in connection, he's talking, he's in conversation with so much that I think is perhaps, it's not appreciated when people talk about Raphael's work now. I think it's, it's, it's there's, a, there's an idea of Raphael, which, you know, you come to his essays and you think, you think you know him. And then you see something and it kind of explodes that understanding. It, yeah, there's so true. much in there. 
it's true. But I think also that the behind the people's history essay, which is not one of my favorite essays, actually, but it was very rewarding to reread it in, in the context of this volume. And it was because what I remember is the debate and argument, because so many people were, so many of us historians were resistant to the idea of people's history. It really divides. Mm. I mean, I'm sure it would divide the editorial collective of the History Workshop Journal today, but it really divides radical and left-wing historians, that term, people's history, because it has, it has, which Raphael addresses in this, you know, he, he addresses the right-wing readings yeah. of people's history and the liberal readings. And he has a real go at the Marxists. You know, people's history, he argues, and he gives the lineage, is tied by an umbilical cord to Marxist history. And there are some histo radical historians who would not give up an inch on the notion of people's history. Mm -hmm. And there are others of us who would. I don't dislike it as a term as much as history from below, which I cannot bear. <laughs> but you know, so what I recall is the debate and what Raphael made of that debate. And as you said, every, every instance is given. I mean, it's, mm. it's, he traces its different manifestations across Europe. I mean, you know, it's, it's such a beautiful essay, actually. I remembered it quite wrongly, but I remember the debate and the arguments around it and the arguments that that volume yeah. that it heads made manifest as well. Uh, history is a very argumentative discipline, isn't it? And Raphael was not, he was a iconoclastic in a very gentle way, and he was a very determined man. And he was radical and democratic to his, you know, within an inch of his life, whether he was in the archives or in a seminar room or in a on a political demonstration. He was determined, but he didn't, want to reproduce himself he had no grandiosity mm. he had no programmatic thinking i mean he didn't think there was a right and a wrong i think another thing that that stands out mm. in the essay that that john's essay flags up is that moment in workshop of the world i think when he says that this this essay comes from an unfinished <laughs> chapter of an, uh, no, an unwritten chapter in an unfinished book. And and what I thought about that, and you say in the essay, you know, his readers would come to know this, this strand of, you know, but That's I thought, true. you know, no one would write that today in, in this world of the, you know, research assessment, whatever the thing is called now, the research assessment frameworks or exercises, this, this emphasis on churning out scholarly productivity, but, and, and also that there is this kind of shame for so many people around these unfinished projects, but it it feels like there is there was this vast, probably unfinishable project that was hugely fertile and generative, and that was creating you know that was that was giving rise to so much thought and conversation and rethinking as as you're as you're both saying you know going back and thinking and was I right was I wrong, I'm bringing in new material and and that that is. 
I mean, there's something just exhilarating about, for me anyway, about reading that sentence and getting the sense of the fertility of, 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 of knowledge and knowledge production at that moment. Yeah, I have to say that every single one of Raffo's essays does promise to be the first part of, you know, an unfinished book or something. There's my favourite being um, the essay, another terrific essay, I think, in the New Left Review on the British Marxist Historians, which is titled The British Marxist Historians Part One. <laughs> I mean, there was never another part. And I've looked through the archive and as far as I know, there's no other part that exists. So he's promised a lot there to, to his editor and New Left Review that never came through. But um, I think you're right with that. Yeah, exactly. Um, yes. <laughs> but I think the other thing you're pointing to, and I think that that idea of a of a body of work which is generative, and I mean John's volume, you know, the the essays that John has selected uh, it will amply demonstrate that. I think because it will make people think, and they'll pick up on a footnote. But the other thing about Raphael's work is that he's a stunning writer. Yeah. I mean, he's a wordsmith. And, you know, the, I, I've said already that he was never, he he, he was never didactic. I, I, I barely think, I mean, you, you were, you learned from by osmosis from Raphael, from the way that he listened to you and the, the books he put in front of you, because, mm. you know, I didn't know anything. I mean, like most students at Ruskin, I'd left school at 15. So he didn't teach you, but he did listen very carefully. And he would just, oh, his, his way with words was compelling. He didn't talk a lot. He didn't talk a lot. Um, but his writing is, is eloquence. But the one, one of the things that he did insist on when I was writing essays for Raphael, which was always an agony for me, not because I was writing them for Raphael, but because I was trying to write. And he would never let me say a, a phrase or a word like working class or middle class. You had to specify who, you know, you teacher, entrepreneur, you know, a judge, Sally, don't use a word like middle class. So he wanted to he wanted to make you break out of certain forms of language, which had become uh, well, had blindfolding mm -hmm. were blindfolding the left or people's independent thought. And I think that's well. I mean, he was a wonderful writer. Yeah, it's it's yeah. There's some. Um some wonderful writing. Some, there's a real kind of literary quality to a lot of it, particularly yes. in some of the description. And it's there's quietly very funny as well. Yeah, very funny. Um, you know, it's not... Very kind of, ironical. Yeah, it's not hit you over the head funny, but there's there's parts, I think particularly in the Irish Catholic uh, poor essay, some incredible bits of humour in there. Um, some of the stories he tells, some of the kind of the irony that, that's employed. It's, it's yeah, it's very funny volume. Um, very droll. Yes. And also, you know, I mean, he loved conversation, Raphael, and he learned, which is again about, about, um, you know, what kind of history this was. But actually, Stefan Collini, the, the political thinker, said history is a very conversational discipline. So I remember, you know, Raphael and 
Gareth Stedman Jones just sitting talking for hours and arguing. They're very different. Gareth was much more theoretical than Raphael, but they had a kind of language that they shared and both, both are wonderful writers. A historian has to be a good writer, otherwise their history doesn't reach beyond the printed page. But you mentioned earlier feminism and the women's liberation movement, which was the moment of political feminism that he lived through and worked with. And um, it was not always harmonious. <laughs> Where I see the influences in Workshop of the World, I mean, that, you know, that would not have been written without feminist historians who were rethinking 18th century handicrafts, 19th century outwork. I, I mean, just the whole range of industrial works, employments that had not been you know, considered before by economic historians. And I still think Workshop of the World could be read by contemporary young historians or political thinkers who read Adam Tooze or Thomas Piketty on capitalism Indeed, any of the good journalists who who dissect and analyze what the relationship is between technology, AI even, yeah. and uh, and people's employment and how people are resilient enough to work around it, and and also anybody reading or thinking about the gap between rich and poor mm -hmm. today, today, right now would learn hugely. I yeah. mean, not only would it be a deep pleasure for them to read, you know, one of the one of the essays in this volume, Workshop of the World or Comers and Goers, or indeed the Irish poor or whatever, but also they would they would be directed just to think to a vast literature and their imaginations would, mm. would be ignited. Yeah. They? Yeah. And uh, talking about the the Adam Twos, readers of Twos and Piketty point. One of the people that I've spoken to about this volume is David Edgerton, the, the historian of science and technology. And he says that that workshop of the world, world volume, he is a proselytizer for it. He says yeah. he's handing it out to all of his students. He says yeah. it's one of the best essays on the history of technology. And I think he's he's exactly right. You know, he's he said that um, he wishes more people had read that. And I think yes. hopefully that this volume will help help that along the way as well. Mm. I think it's also having just read it before we spoke, an extraordinary piece of writing in, in all the ways that you're describing, both at the level of writing about theory in a way that's comprehensible and incisive and analytical, writing about the specificity and these these details that he plucks out about, you know, this wonderful moment of the, what is it? Is it, which industry is it in where the workers are inside the vats jumping up on top, little jumping jacks? I mean, this amazing image. And then stepping back at the end in, in part of his summing up and saying that, you know, this isn't an abstract landscape. It's more like Hieronymus Bosch yes. or Bruegel, you know, just these shifts in tone that bring this together on a literary level that yeah. are yeah. extraordinary, I think. Well, a lot of that, of course, would come from, don't forget, I mean, you know, the students like the ones that Raphael taught were are now integrated into universities. But in the 1960s, people left university, uh, left school at 15 and went to work. 
and they there were many traditions of of edu of education throughout the industrial landscape of Britain, um, of the four nations of Britain, as Raphael would always say. But there was you know six percent of the population went to university, so you learned these things about industry and how people worked and what labor was from talking to people, many of whom wrote and thought for themselves. Mm -hmm. And he, he published many of them and he mentions many of them in his, in his essays and writings. So exactly those images came often from the shop floor itself, you know, or from traditions mm -hmm. uh, of the shop floor. I was going to say because this, those particularly the the pamphlets, the history workshop pamphlets, yes. which were, was that must have been sixty eight seventies ish. I mean, there's in there. There's some incredible. There's the one on um, slang use on the railway, for yes. instance. So on this, you know, this is people writing about their own experiences of work, and you know, this, the, you know, one of these traditions that are passed down within either kind of trade unions or kind of workshop shop floors, or there's some some incredible incredible work incredible historical work in that that's that is you know just just kind of spring from that yes you know historians like stan shipley and dave douglas and bernard rini there are just so many even a historian he wasn't a student of raphael's but jerry white yeah. who failed spectacularly failed his history o level <laughs> you know yeah. And uh, I don't know how many books he's published. Yeah, I know. I was going to say so many books. I think it suggests so much about how much richness there is in all these unfinished books that generated so much by so many people in so many directions. I, I don't know if they're you... everywhere. And he helped. He helps you to see that. You know, the people that you meet in daily life, mm. you know, they'll pull a book out of their pocket or they'll pull their tablet out of their pocket. And, you know, they can quote all sorts of insights to you. They may not know every detail about what's happening to the political classes, but they have thoughts and ideas about how they live. And that's what Raphael wanted to tap into to amplify the history of patriotism or capitalism or migration or whatever the subject was that 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 was under you know yeah. brought into study yeah this is i mean i'm perhaps reluctant to kind of personalize this or or make this kind of autobiographical or something but you know there's so much i see of my own kind of family and, and upbringing and and the the kind of life world i suppose that i grew up in in these essays, in kind of Raphael's work, that mm. I don't see necessarily reflected in so much mm. history that's done today. And I, I certainly didn't in my, my undergraduate degree. Um, I didn't do history at, at postgraduate. I just did an undergraduate. And I partly because it, I ended up hating it by, by the end, absolutely um, did not get on at all with my kind of history taught at academic level. And it was coming to people like Raphael that I saw and can, could reconnect with it again. And it's partly because of you know, this did actually speak to the kind of stories I was hearing from my, my grandfather about, he worked on the railways as well, and hearing about kind of trade union activism or, you know, what it was just like to work on the railways in the in the post-war period. You know, I didn't get that from, from my degree, but I do get that from, from Raphael. I mean, Alison Light says that Raphael's history is 
peopled but it's full of stories as mm. well yeah. it's full of stories and beautifully written and if we i mean if we want to even make one point really it would be that the literary quality yeah. of his writing is you know it general it, it's it's like reading a good novel yeah, or i agree it's just wonderful yeah Many thanks to John Merrick and Sally Alexander for taking part in this conversation. You can learn more about them and about the new collection, Workshop of the World, on the episode page for this podcast. Please visit our website, historyworkshop.org.uk. You can find us on X at HistoryWO and on Facebook and Instagram as History Workshop. This is the History Workshop podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Thanks for listening.